Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Let's hear the word of God as it's recorded in the book of Matthew, the 21st chapter, verses 1 to 11. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them. And he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of them and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. (coughs) Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word. Father, we pray that you help us to open our eyes, or you will open our eyes to your son's authority, his holiness, and to his precious blood. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus had been with the disciples for almost three years now. He had lived 30 years before that. Sometime somebody should give a sermon on Jesus' 30 years of singlehood. He was single for 30 years, and he was pure. Don't ever buy the lie that you can't be pure and be single. But now he has entered his time of ministry only three out of the 33 years. And he has been with his disciples for all of those three years. Before those years, there was the normal work of physical labor, of eating, sleep, But now he came and his work was preaching. And he preached what? Both John the Baptist and Jesus, when they first start preaching, the first word that they both say is what word? Repent. All right? Repent. And so he's been preaching, and now it's coming to the end of those three years. And... Everybody's coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast yesterday. And they come to, and on their way, they pass through a little suburb of Jerusalem called Bethphage. Now, Bethphage is about the distance from Jerusalem as the the softball fields over on the other side of the interstate on 2nd Street would be from here. What that tells you is that Jerusalem was small. And that this little village of Bethphage was small too. I have a map in my office that I have never found a wall that I felt it would fit on. And it's not a map, it's actually a satellite picture of the nation of Israel. And the reason I love this picture is that it has the Tel Aviv airport as you're facing it. It's up here in the corner, not far off of the Mediterranean, right? And when you look at this map of the whole nation, there are the runways. From space, you can see the runways in this tiny little nation. So that's how small it is. So think of how close to Jerusalem Bethphage was. 
And so uh, they're passing through this small, small little town, which uh, was uh, close by Jerusalem. And Jesus says that he wants them, the disciples, he sends a couple of them, and he says uh, <clears throat> that, they, that they are to go and get the donkey. And as we watch Jesus at this point, one thing you know about what he says to the disciples to do, you go, you get the donkey, and if they ask you what, did it, did it, did it, did it. Jesus is not immobilized by uncertainty. And that is an aspect of authority that you see all through Jesus' life. Jesus doesn't spend time gazing at his navel, trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. He prays. But when he makes a decision, he's decisive, all right? Now, think about yourself, and if you're anything like me, you're indecisive. You're double-minded. That's the, that's the verse that my dad always quoted to me, is he was always saying to me, Tim, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And I cop to it. That is who I am. Now, why are we double-minded? Why can't we make up our minds? Well, you may have a righteous reason, but mine, mine isn't righteous. It's because I always have a bad conscience. And a bad conscience never has faith for decisiveness. You know, it's like, well, but if I go that direction, maybe God's going to do this to me. And if I go that direction, maybe. Or it's just I don't have any faith at all that any direction I choose is going to meet with success, right? Or I can't figure out what the right way to, to make a decision is. Jesus did not have the problem of guilt corrupting his judgment. He would pray, and then he would do what pleased his father. And so there's just this delightful directness and manliness and authority about Jesus. Okay? And we find it as men, and I'll bet a lot of you as women. <laughs> I'll bet a lot of you find it delightful too and wish your husband were that way. Decisive. Honey, have an opinion, please! <laughs> Nobody's laughing. All right. <laughs> and so Jesus says, go get the donkey. It's not his. It doesn't matter. Go get it. It's mine. And bring it. And tell the owner, if he asks, tell the owner, the Lord has need of it. Now imagine referring to you, Max once, uh, as he was heading to a family reunion, he asked, Annie, Annie, just sometime while we're at the family reunion, would you look at me and say, yes, Lord? And so uh, Annie, I'm sure blushing three shades of pink, you know, at some point when all the family was around said, yes, Lord. <laughs> and yeah, it, yeah, you know. It did a number, didn't it, Annie? Where's Annie? Oh, first service. It did a number. My recollection is that one of the women that was there was a pastor's wife, and she did not believe that that, it was, that was said anywhere in Scripture. Where does it say that? You know? Well, you know that Sarah called her husband Abraham Lord. All right, that's what it says in the New Testament. Jesus says, tell them what? The Lord has need of it. So it's one thing for him to be decisive. It's another thing for him to be absolutely certain that him referring to himself as Lord will not be offensive. And why isn't it offensive? It's not offensive because it's true. He is the Lord. And I rejoice in the owner of, of that donkey in full. You know, we don't think about it, but I just rejoice that it was like, yeah, the master has need of him. And so he got the donkey, he got the foal, and they were brought to him. The master needs them. Jesus often shows his authority. Think of the time when he looked at the storm and he said, what? A storm. 
He said, peace, be still. And it stopped. What kind of a man is that? And then you think of this wonderful confrontation that I would give anything to have been present for, where Pilate is trying Jesus a little later in this week, and he says, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you. And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. That's authority. So there is no greater authority than the Son of God. The donkey's owner doesn't question the commandeering of his animals. They're brought to Jesus. Then he waits for the disciples to put their cloaks, their clothing, on the back of the animal. And then he'll get on. And even that is an act of humility on Jesus' part. That he, he's now willing to have the animal, to ride an animal, which he never did before, and to have his disciples put their clothes on so that he can. This is a little bit opposite of him bending over and washing their feet, isn't it? <clears throat> what a glorious display our Lord possessed in the eyes of the people that day, as the triumphal entry proceeds. Now, during the final three years of his life, as he traveled with his disciples, healing and preaching and teaching, there had been no place where he had allowed there to be any pomp and circumstance associated with him. If he healed people again and again, what he says is, don't tell anybody. Keep it a secret. I don't want you spreading this around. And Jesus himself often would go and hide, okay? He'd go across the lake to get away from the masses. They just wore him out, and he did not want to be with people, okay? All that changes now. From this point on, Jesus cultivates public attention. All right? Now, up to this point, Jesus' life had been a life of humiliation. <clears throat> we don't think of this often enough, but in Jesus' incarnation, that was intense humiliation. The Son of God to be knit together in his mother's womb. I always think about that, and I think that's so weird. You know, you would think that God, would, if he's able to make a, a, a virgin conceive, you'd think that he, was, he would be able to plop Jesus down fully formed so that he didn't have to undergo the indignities of the womb. <laughs> well, then we look at his birth and the humiliation of his birth also, not just his incarnation, but his nativity. Now, it is true that we have trouble seeing the humiliation because we cover childbirth. You know how the Apostle Paul says that those parts of the body which are less presentable, we give more honor to. You remember that? And so we surround childbearing and childbirth with an incredible aura of sweetness and, and joy. And... But that's because it really is humiliating. Do you understand this? And so Christmas is this unique holiday where we're actually celebrating something that was pretty um, humiliating and yet glorious. And because of the close juxtaposition of the humiliation of the glory, it's sweet, you know? It's, and we get attached to the fact that Herod didn't actually find him, and wasn't able to worship him, and we displace the wise men and their gifts a little bit far. That night, it's for the mothers. I always tell the pastors of our church, don't you screw up Christmas Eve, because my wife will be angry. Do I say this to you, Dave? Yeah. Not, maybe not every year, but I've said it often enough that they've heard it about 10 times now. 
We really care about Christmas Eve, and it's because it's a combination of joy and glory and humiliation, all right? That actually causes us to forget again about the humiliation. Jesus came through the birth canal. And then Jesus cried because he was hungry. And then he was nursed by his mother. And listen, those things are not pride. They're complete helplessness. And this was Jesus' beginning of his life. And then you think about the 30 years that he spent doing manual labor. Even though he could teach the rabbis in Jerusalem. But he worked physically. And then you think about the fact that when he finally did begin his ministry of teaching and preaching and healing, that they, the people absolutely hated him. I'm not talking about just any people. I'm talking about the people that you normally care about, which is the leaders, the important people. And the important people hated Jesus. They plotted from the very beginning to the very end how to kill him, how to imprison him. They hated him. They absolutely hated him. And that was humiliating. They were the ones that were supposed to welcome him. They were the ones that knew the Messiah was coming. They had all the messianic prophecies, you know, and they despised him. And this is more humiliation for Jesus. Then Jesus was subjugated under the law. His father placed him under the law. Now, I didn't, I didn't, so, Abe, do you ever disobey your mother? Mm-hmm. Why do you disobey your mother? Do you have any thought about why? You could be smart and say, because I'm a sinner. That's what the boy said in the first service. So go ahead, try that one. No, wrong answer. <laughs> Why do you not like to obey your mother? Yeah, she tells you things you don't want to do. That's true. But there's another reason that's behind this. How about you, Allison? <laughs> that's pretty good. She said because she has authority over you. But that's not, you're not sitting there thinking, I don't want my mother to have authority over me. All you're thinking is, who does she think she is? In other words, you're proud. That's what you mean when you say, because she has authority over me, right? Listen, we hate to be under any law. I mean, if you saw Facebook this week and you saw me, you know, yeah, I was kind of, you know, giving in to my anti-masking person that is most natural. I had read that the city council decided they were going to make 75 right-hand turns on red illegal in our city. And I'm already frustrated by our city mothers and fathers removing from us so many places that you should be able to turn. Now they're going to make 75 more places. It's going to be illegal. And when they do that, I just think about how wise they are and how stupid I am. <laughs> and how, what a high opinion of me they have. And so think of Jesus, and Jesus was subjugated under the law. One of the sermons that I will never forget was a sermon by my brother, which I never heard him preach, but I read it. And he preached a sermon on Jesus' baptism. Any of you ever wonder, why was Jesus baptized? You know, and was he baptized into Jesus? Well, no. So what was his baptism? His baptism was part of his perfect fulfillment of all righteousness. And so his baptism was a baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance. 
Even before John, he showed himself submissive and humble. And it was humiliating to be baptized by John. Did you ever think about that? Yeah, it's humiliating. And Jesus was subjugated under the law, and then Jesus fulfilled the law. Perfectly submissive in Psalm 40, a prophecy about the Messiah. It says, verse 8, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. Even if we manage to obey our parents and to obey the civil authorities, none of us are saying, I delight to do your law. It's not what we delight in. And so even our motivation when we do obey is because we don't want the police officer to give us a ticket. That's part of our sin. But Jesus delighted in doing that. That was part of the humiliation he went under. And then, of course, in addition to the miseries of this life, there was the fact of Jesus bearing the sins of the world, bearing the wrath of his father. And consequently, people make a lot at Easter or at Good Friday about the physical suffering of Jesus on the cross. And I suppose that there is a certain value to that. But anyone who's ever read the Passion account, there is a point in that account where you go, Oh, no, no. And it is not where, you know, they nail him, he's carrying. It's not any of the physical stuff. Where is it that you go, oh, no. It's when he cries out, lama, lama, sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he was in the garden saying, Lord, if it be possible, take this cup from me. I guarantee you that what was principally in his mind was not his physical suffering. He knew that his father could not look at your sin on his son. He hates sin. And he had to turn from his son because of your sin. Yours. And this is Jesus' life, and this is why. When we read Isaiah 53, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. And he had no former comeliness that we should desire. Everything about Jesus was contrary to what you and I want. Every single verse of Scripture is contrary to what you want. Every single thought of God is perfect, and you can't even begin to understand it. His thoughts are not your thoughts. We are sinners, and we do not receive Christ. And you say, well, wait, wait, this is the one Sunday where we celebrate the fact that we did receive Jesus, right? And so can we please celebrate that? Okay, okay, fine. It's a donkey. It's like a comedy. It wasn't a horse. It calls him in the prophecy and in the New Testament a beast of burden. You know, it's like Mick Jagger. I love it. I mean, it's not a kingly song. And that's what Jesus was writing. He was writing a beast of burden. In common parlance, he was riding an ass. And so even when Jesus did allow worship and allow God's people and the children to tell the truth about him and to tell it loud, okay, there was a certain, I can't stand this about your generation. It makes me sick. (laughs) But it's true here. There is a certain irony. Okay? 
You know, there was a certain sort of like this, because yes, they're worshiping him. They're calling him the savior. They're screaming. They're ripping, you know, branches off. They're putting their cloaks down in the dirt. They're taking out all the stops on the organ, right? But it is a donkey. It's a donkey. Okay. And even as the children are crying out to him, you remember what the religious leaders are doing. They're just furious. And they say, what are we going to do now? It's hopeless, they say. You remember that? They say the whole world's going after him. You know, it's kind of like how all the liberals were when we elected Donald Trump. (laughs) You know, they tried to warn us. You know? They're still gnashing their teeth over it. And, all right, I did vote for him. Everybody that normally comes here already knows this. I'm not going to make any apologies. But, Let's admit that we saw over the course of the last five years something analogous to what was going down between Jesus and the religious leaders. And it was very political. They had that system worked out with Rome where they could be the leaders of the people and do the rites of worship and stuff like that as long as they kept the money flowing into the treasury. And so Jesus upset everything. Because now they weren't the central people. Forget politics. I'm trying to say that you can go into a time where all the elite and all the leaders and all the rich people are furious at what the little children are doing. And the people that work with their hands for a living. Okay? This is not hard for us to understand. Now, I'm certainly not making a parallel between Donald Trump and Jesus. For those of you that are really dense, I just said it. Remember it. (laughs) And so Jesus has little children and poor people. In fact, did you notice what they actually said? What they actually said, they come in and they say, who is this? The whole city is stirred. And did you notice what the crowd said? What the crowd said is, you know, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus. Right? You know they said that, but then what else did they say? From Nazareth in Galilee. (laughs) I mean, you guys, that was the worst possible commendation that anybody could have coming into the royal city of Jerusalem. It wasn't even Samaria, which at least Samaria was filled with half-breeds. Galilee was of the Gentiles, the goyim, the worst of the worst. And this is the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. (laughs) You know? That's the dignity of Jesus. That's the dignity of Jesus. That's the dignity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's his dignity on the day when he has worship and praise. So at this point, in a a sort of ironic way, sort of yes and no, sort of glory and humiliation juxtaposed, Jesus receives their worship. He doesn't receive it fulsomely, except from the children, I'm sure, because he knows what is in the heart of man. Don't you love that statement of scripture? He did not give himself to men. Because why? He knew what was in the heart of man. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem, riding in triumph, 
an outpouring of love and praise, particularly from children. And there will be another day when he will ride into Jerusalem. And that day, there will be no irony and there will be no fear. There will be nothing dissonant. It will be loud and it will be more glory than all the kings of the earth have ever been amassed, able to amass together. And that's when he returns. There will be no humiliation then. He will come with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and Adam will raise first, and then the rest of us will get a chance to to follow Adam, and maybe you if you die soon. And there will be no lack of understanding. There will be no resistance. There will be people who will run to the mountains trying to hide But Jesus will be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, which is what he is now seated at the right hand of his father. And so in John 12, the Pharisees look at what's going on. And the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're not doing any good. Look, the whole world, the world has gone after him. They couldn't turn the thing off. Now, you know that we stopped our scripture lesson at a certain verse, right? Do you remember this? So could you put the end of our scripture lesson back up, please, men? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple. Those are the next words. And, you know, I think about this and I think, You think of all the times when Jesus said what his work was that he was doing to obey his father. And he said over and over again, the son of man must go to Jerusalem and he must be killed. And you remember how Peter responded. Peter said, oh no, my Lord, never, never, never. Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Set his face like Flint. Okay? He waited until now to let the news out. Now he came in, the news was out, the whole world was going after him, and the Pharisees knew it was time to take drastic action. And so Jesus thought, you know, I think what I would really like to do at this time, I mean, if you think about the difficulties and disappointments that these men have had being with me, you know, having... The religious leaders oppose us every time, not having a place to lay their heads, having to depend on the gifts of people so that we can even eat, the humiliation of having to go and eat in people's houses as guests. And there's been so much difficulty to be one of my disciples, you know? I think let's just, you know, like David Wegner says, let's take a vacation from our problems. And so Jesus thought, you know, I think it's time for an R&R. And so they went back out to Bethphage, and they had a house set up, and it was just time to chill. You know? They'd had a wonderful day. You know, there'd been worship, there'd been singing, there'd been branches being waved, and finally everybody got it right. And Jesus said, you know, now would be a perfect time to have some R&R and to explain to the disciples, this won't last forever, but wasn't that tremendous today? You know? And the disciples say, oh, yeah, buddy. I'm going to sleep well tonight. But that's not what happens. Do you remember the words that immediately follow this account? Who is this? This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple. (laughs) It's like, can you imagine how um, despairing you'd be if you were a disciple of Jesus? I mean, they have been waiting for this moment, right? Finally, everybody else sees him the way they see him. They know. It doesn't matter how private they got, how far from Jerusalem they were. He was perfect. 
And they know that he is suitable to be the king. And they know that if he can calm a storm, he can whoop up on the Romans. They are perfectly aware that even as the people worship him on the triumphal entry, they have no clue who they're worshiping. And Jesus goes into the temple. And he goes in the temple. And he takes all the books in the church office. And the little thing that holds the money. And he takes our web page. And he flips it upside down, takes a whip, and he says, you guys are a bunch of thieves. I used to have a tradition every year on Palm Sunday. In the afternoon, I would read the account of this coming week from the book of Matthew. Because he goes directly in the temple and then he tells parable after parable and gives rebuke after rebuke. And there is never a man, not even somebody who went on a hunger strike in Ireland, who has more determined the precise moment and reason that he would be killed. Jesus rebukes and speaks of holiness and makes it clear the lack of any honor or fruit that the religious leaders are giving to his father. And they're the ones in power. It's not like he's insulting, you know, the poor woman that works at at, 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 uh, Speedway. He doesn't bother insulting her. He insults the president of IU, the mayor of the city, the governor of the state, the president of the country. He takes, I mean, it's Al Mohler, it's Wayne Grudem, it's Lig Duncan, it's, it's like Phil Riken. It's all the muckety-mucks of the most important religious institutions. And he decimates them. He curses the fig tree because when the Son of God is present and hungry, it has no fruit for him. And the tree withers and dies. And that's the next week, Jesus. He starts by going immediately into the temple. And then he rebukes and rebukes, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, you travel across heaven and earth to win a single convert, and then you turn him into twice the son of hell you are yourselves. And it's chapter after chapter of this, and Jesus, they said he was what? From where? It said, this is the prophet. And he's from Nazareth of Galilee. And he proceeds to prove them right. He just is out of control in his holiness and his expectations of us. It is very common for religious leaders today of a certain kind, and I'm one of those kind which is uh, reformed. Um, It's very common for us to refer to Christ's threefold offices. It's actually not unique to us, but we do emphasize it. And those threefold offices are the office of? And king. When he rides in on the donkey, he's what? He's a king. When he goes in the temple, he's what? He's a priest. No, he's a prophet. And when he goes on the cross, what is he? He's a priest. Because when he's on the cross, he is offering himself as a sacrifice. That's what priests do, is they make sacrifice for the appeasement of a holy God. What kings do is they lead. They have authority. What prophets do is they rebuke. Are you all with me? And if you look through church history, you'll find that you can sort of separate denominations and and church groups according to whether they emphasize prophet, priest, or king. Okay? And we all know that, I mean, some of you are, but don't worry, I'm not trying to 
but sort of I am. But anyhow, we're not Roman Catholic, and we're not Anglican, and we're not Russian Orthodox or Eastern Orthodox, right? We're not Coptic, you know. We believe what? Well, we believe that they make too much of a deal out of the act of sacrifice. So the central act of the ordination of a Roman Catholic priest is they are given the authority to make sacrifices. And the sacrifice they make is the body and blood of Christ. That's why transubstantiation is so important to them. So they surround the sacrifices with an unbelievable focus and wealth and grandeur. Are you with me? And that was why the Reformation happened, because they were building the Sistine Chapel, and they were so fixated on having their apparatus of priesthood glorious that they were sending preachers out to get people to give them money so that they could spring souls out of purgatory. The minute the coin drops in, a soul springs free. And that's actually what Tetzel said. That started the Reformation. And so we say, well, we don't believe in having pretty churches. (laughs) And we don't believe in our pastor having, you know, well, he can have a bow tie, but not a collar, right? And we don't believe in having architecture that takes 150 years to build. You pour all the wealth of the community into it. And we don't believe that this is an altar. This is a communion table. And so the separation is between us and sacerdotalists, (laughs) okay? People that are into the sacraments and that believe that you have to have sacrifices at the center of all your worship. Christ is a priest. They emphasize the priesthood of Christ and try to reproduce it. Then on the other side, you have king. And so... What churches have kings? Well, Baptist churches. You know, for many years, you were the king. And and a dignified king you were. And nobody could touch you other than maybe if you did some really stupid things while you're on vacation, the deacons could get rid of you. But that's about the only thing that could happen to you, (laughs) you know? And so there are churches that have sort of a mini pope in their church, and he, everybody looks up to him, and he can do no wrong, right? I mean, how does that work? How do you say he can do no wrong right? Okay, I meant it this way. He can do no right wrong. And so the pastor is the one you pay to be pious to prove it doesn't pay to be pious. All right? He's a figurehead. He uses hairspray. And he's perfect. Until he's not, and then you got to get rid of him quickly because he has to be perfect. Okay. And we're not them. People accuse us of being them, but I don't cultivate my image well enough to be a king. You know, kings don't go around. They use the court jester to tell their sins. They don't tell them themselves. So eh, maybe I'm somewhat of a king, but I think we're the prophets. I think it's Christ's uh, office of prophet that we particularly love and cling to. I think if we were to describe our church to people, we would say, we're, we're serious. You know, that was what one woman said to David. Oh, you go to that serious church. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, we deal in truth, right? Let me ask you a question. Do you think the Roman Catholics are really satisfied with the priesthood of Jesus Christ? And then you look at the churches that focus on Jesus as the king and try to reproduce that kingship. And a lot of the acrimony and conflict of this past year over COVID has been that where people have had this, 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 this sense of injustice and how it should be handled and we should be able to have good leaders as if there has ever been a time. You know, if David's the one guy you're going to hold up, a lot of the women here won't be real happy about that. 
And so we are just so fixated as conservative Christians right now on what constitutes good kingship. I mean, okay, the king should have his natural rights as a king, but on the other hand, on the other hand, we are the citizens. And so in America, during COVID, in a very weird way, each of us has become a mini-king. Each of us is so filled with ourselves and what's right and wrong doing with our and how they ought to treat us and and what should and and we actually have the gall to even say that the kingship of Jesus Christ is at stake in me. You know, unless you treat me right, I can't bring in the kingdom of God. I'm all about the kingdom of God. That's why I have to get busted. Do you you get my point? My point is we're all fixated on our rights. And that's a statement of proper authority, and that's always about the king. So now let's come over to the prophet. This is us. Do you think that any of us would have appreciated Jesus' office of prophet? I mean, honestly. Do you think that we would have liked him poking holes in our teaching and our preaching and our book of church order and our hypocrisies and our greed? Huh? Huh? You think we would have liked him to be a prophet to us? Listen, prophet, priest, and king. Yes, we adore him as our priest. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Yes, we adore him as our king. And we do look forward to singing with all the hosts in heaven, King of kings and Lord of lords. And yes, we do love him as a prophet, as long as he's a prophet at a distance. And the distance, I think, should be 2,000 years. Right? What I want you to see, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus was unlike any prophet, priest, or king today. And we would not have liked him as a prophet or a priest or a king. We would not have improved. We would not have approved of of the way he did it. And that's the theme you see through his whole ministry. You see, you know, his brothers and his disciples wanting to go up to Jerusalem and prove he's a king. You know? And and then they want to, you know, bring down... Flames of fire from heaven at the godless, you know. And, and, you know, they, I don't know what to say about priest. Well, yeah, I do know what to say about priest. Peter said, never, <laughs> you know. You know. He just confessed that Jesus Christ was the son of God. He said, well, I, the son of God must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer and die. Never. That's what we think of him as a priest. Listen, Jesus is a prophet. What we need to get into our minds is that in the middle of him rebuking Jerusalem, he said this. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You heard Jody read it to us earlier. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. What? In the midst of all his rebukes, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How long I have desired to gather you under my wings as a hen with her chickens. And then he says what? What does he say next? Come on, you guys, you have to know this. But you would not. You were not willing. And then he says, so now... It's over. It's done. You've lost your chance. That's what he basically goes on to say. Well, you haven't lost your chance. 
And I want to ask you, as a priest, he went to the cross. And he poured his blood out in payment for your sins. As a prophet, he destroyed your self-righteousness. Every principle you think you have that makes you superior to your sisters, to your parents, to me, and a kingship of absolute authority that is perfectly built on the law of God. There is no way you approve of Jesus Christ. Don't celebrate Palm Sunday. Don't celebrate the triumphal entry unless you're willing to say that you love Jesus precisely at the point where he humiliates you by his humility by his obedience, by his authority. If you can acknowledge that those are precisely the things that you love about Jesus, and you can at the same time say, and if I had been there, I'm sure I would have said, by what right? Who gave you this authority? What are you doing? Why don't you go up to Jerusalem? What? People are ready to follow you. Why are you going across? You know, if you're ready to acknowledge that at every point you and your sin would have been disappointed with Jesus, you know, that's what you would have been, is what I would have been. If you can acknowledge that and then breathe a sigh of tremendous release and say, finally, a man who is Peerless, who is as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are his thoughts above my thoughts. Finally, somebody who does not want to please me, but is willing to save me. <laughs> oh my, then... You can sing. Then you can sing. Because you see your sin. And that makes Jesus infinitely more precious to you. You know you would have resisted him. You know you would have been disappointed with him. You know that you would have judged him harshly. And yet you also heard him say, come. Just come. And you can't come to him clean, (laughs) right? That's Satan's lie. Satan is always saying to you, well, don't don't show up yet. You haven't got your makeup on. (laughs) You know? You haven't cleaned up your act yet. That's Satan. Jesus came for sinners. For people who were disappointed in his priesthood, his prophetic ministry, and his kingship. Okay? So let's, uh, let's end this triumphal entry day by worshiping him as he is.